Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as always, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Hey there! Well, today, Chris, I thought we would talk about something that happened uh, recently in the news, especially at the time that we're recording this, since it is... Uh, Currently, uh, uh, mid-October-ish. 2012. Uh, 2012. And, uh, and earlier this week, as of the time we're recording this, uh, a fellow named Felix Baumgartner did something pretty phenomenal. Yes. Actually, I he think fell. he fell. <laughs> <laughs> nice. He fell a lot. Yeah. Um, he fell more than any man has ever fallen before. Right. In space, no one can hear you fall. Yeah, um, true. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, you said that it's been in the news. I, I think this is going to captivate people's attention for a long, long time. Because yeah. I don't know that anybody is ready to better this brand new record well, that and, he set. And, and this record was set more than, uh, you know, 40 years after the last one. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it, it's been a while. Uh, so, what what we're talking about is the Red Bull Stratos jump. Yes. So sponsored by Red Bull. 
was was this crazy uh, attempt to break some world records. And many world records were broken, actually three. Three Mm -hmm. of the four that they were aiming for, Mm -hmm. uh, they broke. If you're curious about the one they did not break, it was for longest free fall. Uh, And I think they were going by longest as in uh, uh, time. Really, Mm -hmm. they were looking at the time. It's kind of interesting because um, according to... What they were, they were going by, uh, the, the person who had the, the record for the highest jump previously, which was a, uh, an Air Force, a United States Air Force colonel named Joseph Kittinger. Mm-hmm. And, I heard uh, his name pronounced Kittinger on the, uh, on the news report that I okay. saw. I don't know that that's. Kittinger. Um, I well, don't know. At any rate, he, in, in, uh, he, he did several jumps for the Air Force to kind of test what this how how could a human survive in a high altitude jump mm-hmm. and um one on one of those jumps he fell for 4 minutes and 36 seconds before deploying his main chute however uh he did use a drogue chute which is a, a smaller chute not meant to uh to slow you to the safe speed but rather to help guide your descent because mm-hmm. uh we'll we'll get into why that's important but he had that deployed in his jump. However, uh, if you're really going to be a stickler, then uh, two years later, that was in 1960, two years later, so 1962, Eugene Andreev jumped from uh, an altitude of around 83,523 feet, uh, which is around 25,457 meters, uh, uh, over Russia, and um, he fell... Uh, for 80,380 feet or 24,500 meters before deploying his chute without using a drogue chute. So, uh, depending on the way you look at it, his is the longest free fall because there was no drogue chute deployed. Anyway, uh, Baumgartner's fall did not last that long before deploying his chute. It was four minutes, 22 seconds, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. So he did not break that record. However, other records, he definitely did break, and uh, it was a, a remarkable achievement on multiple fronts. I mean, uh, just human endurance to be able to handle that kind of uh, 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 battering about you get in a jump of that size, as well as the technical uh, 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 achievements that we made in order to make this possible. So we wanted to talk a little bit uh, about why this is such a challenging thing to take on mm-hmm. and the kind of stuff he used to achieve it. And uh, and of course, this was a huge effort. I mean, this is not one guy going up in a plane and jumping out uh, and deploying a chute. I mean, he there was there was a huge team in place to bring this about. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, as Jonathan has already mentioned, this is not an, an effort that was backed by a government. This was completely private. Yep. Um, which, uh, you know, in in some respects makes things easier um and yes they uh, they didn't use any kind of spacecraft they did have a a pressurized capsule that yep. was uh lifted into place by a very very tall balloon yeah actually the balloon got less tall as it got as it got uh further up in the atmosphere because of the changes in pressure in fact that's probably the first thing we should talk about is the air pressure and why uh, you know, why there were so many things needing to be in place in order for him to have a, a successful jump. Um, air pressure changes at elevations, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. So, 
uh, you know, it makes sense. You, you figure when you think about the Earth and you think about the atmosphere around the Earth, well, if you're on the surface of the Earth, you've got more atmosphere above you pressing down on you than you would if you were, no, oh, quite a bit of the ways up. Mm-hmm. And so uh, at sea level, you have one atmosphere of pressure. Now, if you're wondering, well, what does that mean in terms of you know, other units? Uh, that's that's just under 15 pounds per square inch or, and you're welcome, Europe, uh, that I did this, 1.03 kilograms per square centimeter. <laughs> but one atmosphere is a much easier way of saying that. So that's at sea level, and that's the average. Mm-hmm. Okay, so even even at sea level, that number changes somewhat, but the average is that number. Okay. Uh, now... At 35,000 feet, which is, you know, around where a lot of uh, commercial air flights might be, somewhere around in that area, yeah. uh, which is uh, 10,700 meters. See, I, I did this all the way around. It's about three and a half pounds per square inch. So mm-hmm. remember, at, at sea level, 15 pounds, 35,000 feet, around three and a half pounds. Uh, that, by the way, is uh, 0.25 kilograms per square centimeter. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, or 0.24 atmospheres. Uh, at around uh, 62,000 feet or 19,000 meters, the pressure has reached a point where it's it's so uh, so much less than what we experience that we can have some pretty serious health risks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're we've evolved on this planet to uh, to be able to survive in the conditions. Uh, of our environment. So, you know, we're used to having this certain amount of air pressure. Beyond that, we don't do so well. And if the pressure is too light, then our our blood can actually start to have um, gas form within it. And then it will expand, uh, which is uh, called ebulism. Mm-hmm. And it is not a good thing to have happen to you. So... Uh, that's why pressure is a big deal, and of course we haven't even reached the the height of the uh, where the jump was because the goal for this jump was to jump out at around 120 thousand feet. Uh, in actuality, he got all the way up to around 128 thousand one hundred feet, which is 39 thousand 45 meters, uh, which is just over 24 miles up. Or 39 kilometers for those of you who wanted to, you know, not divide that number of meters there. Um, it took about two hours for him to get there. But at that, at that elevation, air pressure is less than one pound per square inch or less than 0.07 kilograms per square centimeter or 0.07 atmospheres. So you're talking about very little air pressure at all. And because of that, both the capsule he was in and, of course, the suit he was wearing needed to be pressurized so that he would not have uh, any major health risks when he uh, when he jumped out or just mm-hmm. from the ascent. So the capsule was uh, was pressurized first, and uh, it was done that way so that he would not have to pressurize his suit. Uh, from the from the ground as they started to ascend, um, by having it in the capsule, it took some of that that uh, that pow- that energy that was needed off the the actual suit, which is good. You want to preserve that as much as you can. Mm-hmm. 
once they reached the float height, which is where the balloon was not going to rise any higher, it had mm-hmm. gone as high as it was going to go, uh, then that was when it was time to open up the door and start off the jump. Well, that that's where they had to depressurize the cabin and pressurize the suit. Actually, mm-hmm. pressurize the suit first, obviously. Right, yes. Very important step. But then depressurize the cabin so that they could open up the door. You can't open that door otherwise. There's too much pressure on the inside. It's just like if you're in an airplane and yeah. um, you have the emergency exit. The emergency exit, if you are at altitude... It's going to have so much tremendous amount of pressure on the inside because the the airplane itself is pressurized while the outside is not. You can't open that door. Mm-hmm. You're just not physically strong enough. Same thing here. Um, once it was depressurized, he could open up the door. His, his suit had been pressurized. Uh, and that was what gave him that safety, of uh, at least from the environment. I mean, there's so many other things you have to worry about. But as, as far as air pressure goes, that was how they took care of that. And, of course, all the different... Parts of his suit were sealed so that uh, there wouldn't be any leaks. Uh, like the uh, the gloves had uh, these these rotating locks on them so that uh, you could uh, uh, have them uh, airtight with the suit as as well as the helmet. Um, this was really important because a uh, Kittinger had a jump where he had a hole in one of his gloves, and um, apparently the the glove ended up. Uh, uh, for the pressure, it ended up sticking to his hand enough so that it wasn't a huge problem. Uh, and he did not report this to ground control because of fear that they would cancel the jump. And But by the time he landed, uh, there was a problem. His hand started to swell and apparently swelled to about twice the size of normal uh, due to the uh, the changes in pressure and 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 <laughs> and so that's something you don't want to have happen mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. can avoid it. That's true. That's true. Yeah, the uh, the suit was actually made by a uh, company from Massachusetts, David Clark. Yep. Um, they and, they uh, made suits for uh, the Gemini <laughs> missions <laughs> as well as uh, space shuttle missions. Gemini missions. I don't know. If that sounds like a, an internal joke, it, it sort of is. You gotta uh, listen to some you've... of our previous <laughs> space podcasts. We, we did a series on the Gemini missions a few years ago, and one of the, uh, uh, astronauts from that time kept pronouncing it Gemini, and, and Jonathan's, uh, blood pressure just kept rising every time he said it. Gemini cricket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it was, um, uh, same company that did that. Uh, yeah, they've, they've made, uh, all kinds of suits for, uh, aeronautics and space. Uh, for decades now. Yep. So, um, you know, they're a, they're a well-known, well-respected, uh, firm to, uh, to have done that. And obviously, uh, since the jump was successful, n- no spoilers intended, but, uh, you know, well, it's they, nice to know. I was about to say, you can't really spoil something that already happened. Um, well, no, if somebody's like just now hearing about this. Yeah. Well, uh, then you, you have been hiding in a hole. You can, you can watch, actually watch this live when it happened. And, uh, from about an hour into it, I, I turned it on after it had been on for an hour because the mm-hmm. ascent took just over two hours mm-hmm. to get to the right, uh, altitude. So, yeah. um, Jonathan told me about how he felt when, uh, Bumgardner opened the capsule door and, and started to step out. It yeah. went, it, they call him Fearless Felix. That's the nickname he is. Yeah. Sheer terror was what was going through me. Yeah. Uh, seeing his, uh, yeah, well, we'll get into it, but, but, um, 
the, the to go back to the suit, it also could oh. withstand temperatures as low as minus 90 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 68 Celsius mm-hmm. or over 100 degrees Fahrenheit or 37.8 degrees Celsius. So um, also very important because, of course, uh, at that uh, elevation, you were also talking about very, very cold temperatures. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, there were parts of his fall that were colder than others. It was interesting because it it actually warmed up a little bit from, um, I forget what. Friction? No, 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 not friction. I'm just talking about the ambient temperature. Oh, 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 sorry. Actually warmed up. Like there was a point in the atmosphere. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was watching and they talked about it too. They said, well, you know. Closer to the sun. I'm like, really? You're not that much closer. The sun's 93 million miles away. I think a few feet isn't a huge difference. No, but, I imagine not. But it was interesting. You could watch and the temperature gauge was going up. It went really low and then started creeping up again just slightly. Not like – it wasn't like skyrocketing. But at at the uh, height where he was jumping, the temperature was around uh, minus 10 Fahrenheit, which is minus 23 Celsius. So I blame cows. Yeah? Yeah. Methane production? Is that yep. what you're talking about? Okay. I was trying to see where you're going there. Note, not based on scientific fact, mostly because I just wanted to say cows. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, so the the suit had to be able to withstand these cold temperatures as well. And uh, mm-hmm. his suit also had um, uh, a very – it looked a lot like the space suits you would see uh you know, in any NASA presentation or if you watch any of those launches, it looks a lot like those. Actually, it also looked a little bit, um, just from appearances sake, uh, sort of like the stuff that race car drivers wear. Yeah. Probably yeah. mostly because the, you know, uh, the names and the decals and things. Right. Yeah. So uh, it also had, uh, sponsors. It also had a, a sun visor that, uh, that Felix could put down or, or up if he needed to. Uh, and the, the visor itself, was heated uh, mm-hmm. in order to have it uh, you know, avoid icing issues. You know, obviously, yes. if you're if you're going through super cold temperatures, and you've you know, we give off a lot of water vapor, as it turns out, mm-hmm. and it could, there could be a lot of icing problems both on the inside and outside of a suit. And uh, in fact, that was one of the issues that almost uh, seemed to be a big problem during the. Um, the ascent because mm-hmm. it looked like, according to Felix, that the faceplate was not heating properly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, they, I, I think the first time I heard about that was when he was around 80,000 feet or so and still rising, obviously, still climbing. Uh, and, and then you hear the people on who are speaking during the, uh, the whole ascent, you know, the people who are relaying information to the audience mm-hmm. saying, everyone here is trying to find out what options we have. And I'm like, wow, what options do you have? And the the option, the biggest, like, last-ditch option thing, you know, in mm-hmm. order to get him back to Earth safely, you, you, you ditch the jump. Right. But the capsule itself was connected to the balloon and, had, and could uh, disconnect and had its own parachute. Yeah. So the you know, worst-case scenario uh, uh, action would be to cut the – the tie to the balloon mm-hmm. to deploy the parachute on the capsule and have the capsule come down to earth. Now that was not ideal. Uh, mo- well, first of all, you're, you're aborting the jump. So that's not ideal, but right. also it would have been a bit of a rough landing. Uh, now the, the capsule itself had uh, crash sections built into it, crash mm-hmm. pads 
to absorb some of that impact uh, if it were to um, to have to land. Now, and, and then, of course, they did detach the capsule at the end of the jump anyway because they wanted to retreat the capsule. But um, uh, you know, it's, it definitely would not have been a soft landing. Yeah. It would have been a little rough. And it's interesting because the inside of the capsule, again, looked very much like the Jiminy capsules. <laughs> Um, uh, it was, uh, it was a, a tiny little thing, really. The, the capsule was six feet tall or 1.8 meters mm-hmm. and it weighed, uh, 2,900 pounds or 1,315 kilograms. And, um, uh, yeah, I mean, you take a look at this and you're like, wow, this looks like it would fit, you know, in a, in a special casing on the top of a rocket. It really did look like some of those early NASA spacecraft. Mm-hmm. True enough. So... <clears throat> Should we talk about the uh, about the jump? Sure. Um, I mean, there's other there are other things. Actually, before we talk, talk about, about the jump, the... I want to talk about the balloon. Oh, the balloon. Okay. I want to talk about the balloon because the balloon is crazy. Uh, yes. So it has its own story. Actually, five or so of them. <laughs> well, the 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 weird thing I thought the the strangest thing to me about the balloon was how incredibly thin that material was. Yeah. So uh, it's it was made out of polyethylene plastic film mm-hmm. and it was point zero 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 eight inches thick that's pretty thin yeah yeah it's pretty thin or point zero 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 two or point zero 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 two centimeters thick there we go all I'm right i got to get that number right um, but yeah super super thin uh, they called it a 40 acre dry cleaner bag <laughs> because it was essentially made of very similar stuff. Now, if you're thinking like, how could that possibly bear the weight of this capsule, which you know weighs quite a bit? Uh, the re- the way they did it was they used this uh, load tape that mm-hmm. was connected to the balloon, and the load tape was actually what bore the load of the capsule. Right. Uh, the tape also had in it a special reflective material. So that the balloon would show up on radar. Mm-hmm. Uh, very important for any aircraft in the area. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, uh, the, the mission was working along with air traffic controllers to make sure there wouldn't be any problems on that. Because, you know, you can't really direct where a balloon's going to go. Right, right. You are, uh, you are at the mercy of the winds. Mm-hmm. Although this was over the, uh, the desert in the southwestern United States. Yeah, it was near. So there weren't um, a lot of populated areas. Right, near Roswell, New Mexico. So it was really just the military and aliens right. that were there. Exactly. Um, uh, by the way, I'm totally joking. The whole <laughs> Roswell alien thing is absolutely ludicrous. But anyway, um, so yeah, and that balloon was created by ATA Aerospace. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, here's some here's some stats on the balloon some, mm-hmm. some, uh, for people who are curious about how big this was. Yeah. So uninflated. It was uh, 592.41 feet long, or 180.6 meters. Uh, now, at the height, once it was uh, inflated, and which takes about an hour, takes about an hour to inflate this balloon with helium. They used helium because it's uh, non-flammable. Very important. Much. And if, if you've been wondering why there's a helium shortage, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, talk about because that's a big balloon. That's to fill a big balloon helium. to fill up with helium. Yeah, yeah. The LHC might have a few things to say to Felix. I have to um, explain to your kid why she can't get a Dora balloon. Yeah. <laughs> now you know. Blame it on Felix. So uh, yeah, just get that Dora balloon filled with hydrogen. I can't imagine uh, anything bad happening from that. Take don't, it to a birthday party. Don't do that. <laughs> hydrogen is 
highly flammable. That's why they went with helium. Blow out the candles. Uh, so <clears throat> the height of the balloon, once it was fully inflated at takeoff, was about 550 feet or 167.6 meters. And um, once it reached its altitude, the height was more like 334.82 feet or 102.1 meters because, again – as it got higher up in the atmosphere, as that atmospheric pressure decreased, the balloon started to um, – the height began to decrease, but its its diameter increased. It began to round out yeah. quite a bit because when you first looked at it, it looked like a teardrop. Yeah, it was kind of uh, tall and skinny really compared yeah. compared to what we uh, think of when we do think of birthday party balloons. You right. know, I mean those are teardrop shaped too but not – this is a lot longer than that. Right. So once so it, it got up to the... Got the, mushroomier. Yeah. It, yeah. It definitely rounded out as it got higher up. And uninflated, it weighed a svelte 3,708 pounds or 1,682 kilograms. You just wanted to say svelte. I did. And uh, yeah. And it also had a vent so that it could vent off helium. Now, this is also really important. You know what bugs me? No, Those other balloons. I it, think they're... No, it didn't. It didn't vent anger. It oh. vented helium. <laughs> yeah. Now, the, uh, the, the, the reason for the vent is very important because the helium was expanding as the balloon was climbing, right? So at, uh, there does come a point where there's a possibility that that expansion could damage the balloon itself and tear right. the balloon. So the balloon needed to have a way of venting out excess helium in order to uh, avoid that. And, in fact, they did vent helium at least once or twice, especially once they passed that 120,000 feet mark because that, again, was their goal, and they went right by it and kept on going. Um, so, you know, there was a point where there was some concern about making sure that the the balloon and capsule maintained integrity Yeah, because it was starting to go beyond what they had uh, planned. So as, as long as they didn't run into any wire coat hangers, because that seems to be the uh, downfall of most dry cleaner bags. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's teasing, exactly the problem. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle 
almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI. And Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, yeah, they, and, and they also had some pretty, some other pretty cool equipment yeah. uh, involved in this. They had nine high definition cameras uh, that were mounted on both the suit and uh, on and inside the capsule. So they had cameras mounted on on these arms pointed back at the capsule, so you could get these mm-hmm. great views of the capsule as it was going up. Um, also, as the door opened, which that's the part where I was terrified, and I'll go, I'll talk about that in a second. Uh, but there were also cameras on the suit, so you, they could capture footage during the actual yeah. uh, jump. Mm-hmm. And plus, beyond that, they had a helicopter that was uh, using uh, a camera mounted on a stabilization gyroscope uh, to track Felix's movements. Mm-hmm. And they had ground cameras on these huge trucks with these uh, these enormous uh, bases that were motorized so they could track the progress yeah. of the balloon. And it it's phenomenal to me because you think that's a balloon that is more or less – 24 miles up in the air. Yeah. So to have a camera that can capture something that's that far away is pretty amazing. Yeah. You know, you think about that for a second. You're like, well, yeah, I've got a digital zoom on my camera. Yeah. <laughs> it goes up to 1.7. And well, this camera can capture something that's 24 miles away. Well, tracking the balloon was a whole lot easier than tracking Felix after yeah. he stepped out of the capsule. Right. He's much, first of all, uh, yeah, he doesn't he's have smaller. all that reflective. He's smaller, um, although not that much smaller. It's a six foot tall capsule. <laughs> he was also moving a whole lot faster. Yes, yes, because he was he was going downwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that was that was definitely. I mean, the the footage that they captured was pretty phenomenal, and especially when you sit there and think about the challenges involved. And and beyond that, not just capturing the footage, but transmitting the footage, getting right. that live feed. From the capsule, you're thinking, wow, that's – they had to dedicate a lot of bandwidth uh, you know, yeah. in order to get that information from the capsule to the ground and stream it out live. 
And in fact, they had uh, three dedicated video downlinks with built-in redundancy to get that information down to the ground. Mm -hmm. And then they had a fiber optic network on the ground to process that information. And they had live switching so they could switch, you know, different cameras at different times to give the best uh, angle or the best camera experience at any given moment. Yeah. Which was pretty, you know, this was, it was clearly something that the whole media side of it was there was a lot of thought put toward it, which well, is sure you know that that's, that's the age we're living in. Yeah. So, uh, getting to the actual jump, once they got to the point where uh, they had reached the right altitude, uh, they had to go through a a a very long checklist to make sure that everything was prepared before the jump, and that involved uh, pressurizing the suit. Disconnecting the suits from the suit from the uh, the capsule because mm-hmm. things, the, the capsule had its own oxygen supply because again at that elevation uh, the atmosphere is so thin that we would not be able to breathe up there so uh, the capsule had its own oxygen supply and then uh, the suit did as well so you had to detach the suit from the capsule because clearly you can't jump if you're still got all these hoses connected well you can but it's not recommended no it would not go well. So there was that. There was the whole uh, depressurization, opening up the door, moving the chair around quite a bit. Uh, the chair inside the capsule could move forward and backward a little so that he could reach various controls. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was the point where he had to move the chair back. He had depressurized the capsule, pressurized the suit. The door had opened. And then they used an exterior camera to capture the moment where he moves – he's lifted his, his feet up so they're above the threshold of the little capsule door. Mm-hmm. And then he moves the chair forward, which means his feet come out of the doorway and over nothing. And that's where I freaked out. <laughs> At that point, he was uh, – he had to stand on a, uh, a a platform that was about the size of an average skateboard. Yeah, looks so, like it. Yeah, and there he is in a spacesuit, standing mm-hmm. on a skateboard-sized platform, holding on to these uh, rails that are on either side of the capsule door. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, once he had the go-ahead, he let go and started falling. And I, I don't think I breathed until uh, <laughs> until he stopped spinning. So here's one of the issues about jumping at that that height. So. Again, atmosphere is really thin, right? Mm-hmm. You don't immediately start to slow down. In fact, the atmosphere is so thin that you will go faster than you would if you jumped from, uh, you know, any other height. Like, you know, you don't have anything pushing against you or not, not as much pushing against you because there is atmosphere out there. It's just not mm-hmm. as much. It's in the stratosphere at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um and in case you're wondering, I, uh, I happened to catch a news report in which, uh, they had asked him, and uh, Felix said that he didn't look down; he was looking straight out. Which, at that at that altitude, I'm not sure how you could avoid it because the Earth is. You could see the the curvature <laughs> the, of the, the Earth. curvature of the Earth, and you're that, going, okay, that's, that's sort of down. That's something else that's kind of interesting is that the curvature you can see it at that altitude, mm-hmm. but uh, the if you look at the footage from the jump, mm-hmm. the curvature is incredibly evident like you, you yeah it's just it's 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 obvious the reason it's obvious is because of the camera lens yeah it's a wide angle camera yeah. lens so it artificially has bent the edges so it looks like the the curvature is much more it looks Pronounced. like he's much further up than he yeah. really was um but in reality that you you could you 
from what I've been told, you can see the curvature at that altitude. It's just not as dramatic as what it appeared as on the uh, live stream. So mm-hmm. just wanted to br- point that out. Yeah. But but at that altitude, he he um, he moved uh, very quickly into a very fast speed, 32 feet per second per second, or uh, 9.754 meters per second squared. That's the acceleration of gravity, people. If, yeah. you, if you are if you are at all interested in physics, you will memorize that and use it all the time. Yep. So he he rapidly uh, increased to that speed. Yeah. His like, his his top speed uh, is estimated because we at the time of the recording of this podcast we do not have the final uh, information, but his top speed was estimated at eight hundred thirty three point nine miles per hour, or one thousand three hundred forty two point eight kilometers per hour. Mach one point two four. Yeah. So Mach being the speed of sound, he yes. had broken the sound barrier. The first human to do so, un uh, unaided by any sort of vehicle. Yes, and um, that's another interesting point. That the interview with the scientist that I had watched said that. Um, uh, the speed of sound is a little different at that altitude too. Right. Sound, sound travels, you know, the speed of sound is dependent upon the medium through which it's traveling. Mm-hmm. Uh, sound will travel at a different rate of speed depending on if you are in, uh, you know, it'll travel at a different rate of speed from sea level to 120,000 feet. Uh, it'll, it travels at a different rate if it's through water or through a solid. So, um, yeah, it's one of the, and in fact, we should, might as well. This is a little bit of a tangent, but light's the same way. Mm-hmm. Light travels at you, you. You've heard of the speed of light being a constant. That's right. true, but that's talking about the speed of light in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Uh, the speed of light will change depending on what it's traveling through. Now, most of the time, for us as human beings, that change is uh, imperceptible to mm-hmm. us without incredibly sensitive measuring equipment. So, to us, it's you know, going at at the speed of light or just a hair under the speed of light is mm-hmm. effectively the same thing for us. Yeah. And I, I've tried to observe that myself at my home, but I keep getting dust in my eye every time I open that little bag. And it doesn't seem like there's any light in there at all, but it may be the dust. I can't tell. Oh, right. Inside your vacuum. Yes. I got you now. So you should go with a Dyson that's the bagless. Yeah. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. 
and you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, but yeah, he. Uh, it's funny because when you get the idea of somebody jumping out of an airplane, you're doing a, a traditional skydive, uh, most of us have a pretty good idea of what that quote unquote, looks like you, you, you stand in the door, you jump out of the plane and you instantly put out your arms and legs and you just sort of glide until you feel like it's time to open your chute. Then you pull it and go. Well, Felix wasn't as graceful, but it wasn't his fault. Yeah. <laughs> See, as, it, as it turns out, that whole atmosphere being thinner thing kind of affects the way you fall at that yeah, he, height. Yeah, he couldn't use air resistance to help orient himself because that's one thing. Experienced skydivers can do all sorts of really cool maneuvers yeah. uh, while, they're, while they're diving. And, and it's all due to the whole air resistance and being able to use their bodies to angle mm-hmm. in certain ways. Either they can do a, you know, they can, they can, uh, try to resist uh, or, or change their wind resistance, like like reduce it to a point where they're falling very, very, very fast. Yes. Or they can try to increase their uh, wind resistance by increasing the surface area as much as possible. Mm-hmm. They can and, do somersaults and other kinds yeah. of tricks. But at that altitude, there wasn't enough air, not enough atmosphere right. to be able to do that. So there wasn't there wasn't that level of control. And so Felix did start spinning. Uh, and if you watch the video, that also was terrifying because you could see him spinning around and around. And you're like, okay, I sure hope he's able to maintain consciousness, and not black out because, uh, uh, Kittinger said, you know, he blacked out during his fall yeah, because of a similar issue. And that's why the drogue shoot was so important was to, it was actually, I think it was not the 102,000 foot, Jump, but the previous one that Kitten, Kittinger did, mm-hmm. where he he blacked out, and so that's why the drogue shoot was so important for him uh, in his uh, in his highest jump. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you could see that spinning happening, but then once 
once he did start hitting the the uh, next levels where the atmosphere was starting to to increase in density, he was able to orient himself into a traditional skydive um, um, position, del- the delta position. Yeah, I've heard it called. And and uh, is that what it's called? That's right. interesting. I've never gone skydiving, so I know very little about it. And, although, and internet, this is just between me and you. Do not tell my wife because she would flip out. But I am planning on doing a skydiving jump possibly during CES 2013. You are not. I am. Really? Yeah, me and uh, Ayaz Akhtar of This Week in Tech are thinking about doing some skydiving during CES 2013. Uh, Are you going to parachute into the... uh into the, the show into hall? the Las Vegas Convention Center, doubtful. Uh, it'll be much further out into the desert. But don't tell my wife because she would flip out. Okay, pinky yeah. swear. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, yeah, he 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 assumed that position, and then that was the point where I was. I said, "Oh, good. Well, then he's clearly he's clearly conscious and he's aware of what's going on, and he's able to respond." Um, he uh, deployed his chute. Uh, at the appropriate time, and uh, that was a big that, – that got a big cheer from mm-hmm. ground control. And uh, did you see – did you watch any of the video of his landing? Oh, yeah. It was a perfect landing. Absolutely. He, he – it was like – it was like he just stepped off a step. Yeah. Like it wasn't like he just came from 128,000 feet. It was like he had just walked down a set of stairs. Yeah. I would have looked like a sack of potatoes from a 20-foot I would have been dragged, have been dragged at least another few hundred meters. <laughs> like, well, I'm sure. He's, he's an accomplished uh, jumper. He's yes. an accomplished base jumper. Um which is uh, you know jumping off of ironically enough it's you know lower altitudes uh yeah. you know bridges and all sorts of other uh different physical features. Uh, just, you know, so he's, he's, this is, well, you wouldn't try this at home anyway, but yeah. I mean, this is not something from that, that an inexperienced person did. He's, uh, clearly a, a well accomplished jumper and, and he, yeah, it was an absolutely perfect landing. And then he got, as soon as he, uh, came to, to a stop, he went down on his knees and put his hands up in the air like, that was pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was. I, I, I had made the comment of if I had done that, I would have made the decision I am never leaving the ground again. From now on, people bring stuff to me. Yeah. I I did my part. It's like, I'm not going back over the ocean. You bring that continent right. here. I want to go to London. Bring London here. <laughs> no, that so. was – it was an absolutely amazing uh, – Amazing feat, and it does have its. Uh, it does have a lot of uh, importance. You you might not necessarily believe that, right? You uh, might it, think of it as simply some stunt. sort of stunt, yeah. But it, it, going beyond that, I mean, there are. First of all, this this kind of is a proof of concept of something that NASA was talking about in the '60s when they were thinking about if there were a problem with a spacecraft, would it be possible for astronauts to space dive? Back to Earth. Would it? Would there be any way they could do that, um, or is that just a you know outside the realm of our our abilities? And they theorized that it would be possible, but they were they were never able to test it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kittinger's jumps were kind of related to that, and a lot of the data that they collected uh, during this jump, there was stuff that they could put toward developing more safety features for astronauts as well as space tourists because. Whoever thought that would become a thing, but now it yeah, is, yeah. you know? Well, um, and, and 
there I saw some uh, some people talking about the space shuttle program and uh, of course the 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 two famous disasters. Right. Um uh one of the people that has been working on this is um the husband of one of the people who who perished in the Columbia accident. Mm. Um they were too high to have done something like this. They were moving they were too far out uh, from the planet when the uh, the accident happened and and they were moving way too fast something like Mach 17 I think I remember right um, reading it was uh, Dr Jonathan Clark who was a uh, former NASA flight surgeon uh, his wife Laurel um, died in that accident so uh, you know he was he was involved in the process of of going through the the safety procedures here um, he's dedicated his life to um, working on safe better safety in space and um, uh, you know, as far as the Challenger incident, well, it's, it's sort of unclear um, whether they would have been able to get out or not. Um, of course, some of the, the uh, procedures they developed for the space shuttle were after that as a result of that accident. So, um, But, you know, in the future, depending on, on the different kinds of missions that are undertaken, you know, either by NASA or another government space agency or by private enterprise, you know, I, I think that this information could prove useful, um, yeah. you know, in an emergency or, you know, perhaps as a form of space tourism. I don't know. Well, and and, and just learning learning what the effects are yes. of these the the things that that uh, that Felix experienced during this whole jump. I mean, yeah. everything from breaking the the sound barrier that no one was really sure what would happen to a person, and in fact. To be fair, as of the recording of this podcast, we cannot be certain that he did break that barrier because the final numbers haven't come in. Uh, he had a – did you see how he would know if he broke the sound barrier? Mm-mm. Uh, his uh, – so so he has a chest plate or he right. had a chest plate on his on his suit yeah. that contained a lot of different sensors, telemetry, you know, uh, uh, information, GPS, all this kind of stuff. If the sensors detected that the – uh, suit had exceeded the speed of sound, mm-hmm. it would send a ringtone to his helmet. Huh. But he said he was concentrating so hard on what was going on that he totally did not, he didn't notice anything. So it may have gone off or it may not have gone off and he would, he doesn't know because he was, you know, at that point, I'm kind of just really paying attention to what's going on. <laughs> Especially once you know he he came out of that spin. Yeah. So I'm flying here. Yeah. I got <laughs> hey lady. I'm flying here. Yeah. Um. But yeah, there there are a lot of there are a lot of things that this could help with, including designing new types of spacesuits that are uh, uh, effective and are not as you know. We can always make advances in that that realm. We don't want it to be so clunky that you can't maneuver around within the confines of a space vehicle. Yeah. But it still has to have the adequate levels of protection necessary to make to maintain the health and safety of our astronauts. Yeah. So that's an important thing to to keep in mind too. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, I don't think I don't think most of our uh, uh, Space suits will necessarily have uh, sponsor logos on them, but <laughs> or maybe they will. Maybe they will. Um, I-, I was disappointed that the 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 spacesuit didn't have wings. <laughs> well, it, it was interesting too to uh, to compare, and, and you know, I'm, I'm going in my head here, looking at the the suits that they wore in uh, NASA launches from the 1960s and yeah. 70s um, were so much bulkier. 
um, than this. Well, I mean, they were they were intended for different purposes, but uh, I imagine the equipment uh, in this newer suit was far more advanced than what Kittinger wore. Yeah. Um, on his jumps, and uh, you know, the, with the technology advances, uh, you know, <laughs> it's funny. They in a way they resemble more what Hollywood um, suggests for you know s- space fighter pilots than from what the uh, the astronauts, the the actual astronauts from from our own planet. Um, or yeah. back in the days when I, that was so common. I look forward to the, to the day when we have spacesuits for space jumps that are like the ones in the documentary Star Trek. Yeah, not the not the original motion picture Star Trek, but right. the 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 J.J. Abrams documentary Star Trek. Yeah, the J.J. Abrams documentary Star Trek colon the lens flare. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, <laughs> it caught me off guard. So yeah, do you have anything else you wanted to talk about this uh, this no, jump no, in particular? Mm-hmm. It was a really neat thing to watch uh, live, and and Twitter was going bonkers as this was happening. I saw so many people I know tweeting about this, and um, uh, it just seemed like there was a an overall sense of excitement, and and not I was not the only terrified person on Earth watching this. No, um, and you can watch. The entire presentation as well. It's it's up online, so you can go and watch, or you can watch segments of it if you don't have, you know, two and a half hours to burn. But uh, it's it's definitely something something amazing. It's one of those moments in human achievement where you think, wow, it never would have occurred to me that this is something that anyone would want to do. And right. if they wanted to do it, I can't imagine it being possible. And yet, both of those things happened. Yep, it was it was an amazing event, and uh, I'm glad it ended so well. Yes, definitely. Picture perfect. Yep, yep. It was so many different things could have gone wrong. I'm glad a, a lot of really smart people worked on this to make sure it went off without uh, without any major glitches. Yeah. So uh, my hat is off to you, and uh, all of the team that was uh, responsible for this is pretty phenomenal. So uh, Felix, go uh, put up your feet, relax. Um, you know, maybe maybe slow down a little bit for a while. You know, you know stop and smell the roses. Don't, and not at 120,000 feet. Keep, uh, keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the star. Right. So, guys, if you have any subjects you think we should cover in future episodes of Tech Stuff, I highly recommend you get in touch with us and let us know. Because otherwise, how would we find out? One way you can let us know is by sending us an email. That address is techstuff at discovery.com. Or you can always let us know on Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. And Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment... Oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. 
This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 